Today on Context, shocking revelations in Ottawa as the Prime Minister is implicated in political interference on the criminal prosecution of engineering giant SNC-Lavalin. I experienced a consistent and sustained effort by many people within the government to seek to politically interfere in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion in my role as the Attorney General of Canada. Shaking the confidence of our nation's leader further, the President of the Treasury Board, Minister Jane Philpott, in a sudden and explosive announcement, resigns. The Leader of the Opposition saying Minister Philpott's resignation is confirmation that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau must step down. A government in total chaos. Longtime PMO friend and advisor Gerald Butts resigned saying he was a distraction. He spoke to the Justice Committee refuting former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould's recollection of events in the SNC-Lavalin affair. What I am here to do is to give evidence that what happened last fall is in fact very different from the version of events you heard last week. Today on Context, a government in crisis and the trickle-down effect of bribery and corruption. A look at Canadian values of honesty, rule of law, and why blowing the whistle on corruption matters to our national ethic. Okay, a lot to uncover today as Canada's government is under scrutiny and joining us to weigh in on the opposition's response is Provencher Conservative Member of Parliament, Ted Falk. Hello, Ted. This is sounding like such a he said, she said. Um, the, the, the two different perspectives that we're getting on what is right and what is wrong here. Do the Conservatives still want to see the Prime Minister resign over this? Hi, Lorna. Good to be uh, back with you again at Context. Uh, the short answer to your question is absolutely yes, we do believe that he should still resign. We, we believe, given all the testimony that we've heard and uh, the resignations that we've seen over the last couple of weeks and the explanations that they've given for their resignation, that he has absolutely lost the moral authority to govern. Okay. Um you, you are in uh, the shadow committee that is to be about jobs and employment in Canada, and you heard, you know, this large engineering firm uh, be, being defended by the Prime Minister's office saying, this is all about jobs. Is this just the way business needs to be done in Canada? No, this is not how business should be done in Canada, and I, I don't think Canadians expect it to be done that way. Uh, and in fact, I believe most of our Canadian businesses do not operate uh, in, in such a way that that we overlook corruption, bribery uh, and fraud for the sake of creating or keeping jobs. And I don't think this is just about jobs. Lorna, what creates jobs is, uh, is work. And when there's work, uh, jobs will be created, uh, whether they're created in one company or not. But uh, as long as the work is there and as long as the projects are there, the work will be there and the jobs will follow. Okay. So um, we now have um, the Prime Minister uh, calling in in help, getting a lot of political advice. Is contrition going to change your mind as Conservatives? If he would um, apologize, if there would be contrition, would that correct the clock here? I don't think that Canada has ever had a Prime Minister that likes to apologize more than the current one. Uh, I don't think at this point a, an apology is going to be sufficient. 
And, uh, and, I, and, and I say that for several reasons. Had you been open and transparent about the process right from the get-go, I think that would have created a different environment. But what we've seen is a prime minister that denied the incident from ever happening to, to a myriad of excuses from, from saying, well, I may have had the discussion with the attorney general to, uh, you know, but I certainly didn't put pressure on her to, to then having comments made through, uh, through the PMO and, and getting out into the media that she wasn't a team player, she didn't speak French, uh, Scott Breeson resigned, so I had to shuffle her out of the position that I did. And, uh, and you know, all these things have been refuted by Jody Wilson-Raybould. And uh, I, I really don't think an apology at this point uh, is going to be sufficient, uh, certainly not for Conservatives, and I don't think Canadians are going to accept it either. Okay, so the focus is on the Prime Minister's office, but this also does put a spotlight on big business corruption uh, that, you know, the SNC-Lavalin charges were under the radar for many Canadians. But um, do you believe that uh, the nation's ethics are under erosion? Well, certainly under the current government, they seem to be. I mean, we've never, uh, in, in the recent history, experienced a government with so many scandals behind it. And, uh, you know, when, when there's scandal after scandal and inappropriateness, and I think this is the first time that a, a sitting prime minister has ever been convicted with ethics and uh, uh, violations. Uh, I think the Canadians need to sit back and say, "Boy, is this is this really what we wanted from this real change and transparency?" And uh, I think when they ask those, themselves those tough questions, they're going to see that no, we expect more from a government. We expect more from leadership. We certainly expect more from our prime minister. All right. I uh, this sounds like an election playbook coming together for you. Um, are the Conservatives uh, or how are the Conservatives going to be keeping this in front of Canadians? Well, I don't think the investigation is anywhere close to concluding. Uh, we're, we're asking that the Prime Minister resign. We're also uh, hoping that the RCMP will launch and conduct their own investigation. And I think as they do a thorough investigation of the facts, uh, they will discover things that uh, I believe Canadians uh, will find very disturbing. And once we can get to the bottom of it, I think then we'll be, uh, and, and that won't happen right away. I think the RCMP will need their time to do the due diligence and to look carefully into the records, the books, the conversations, and see exactly what did happen so that they can make an improper analysis of, of the situation. All right. Ted Falk, Provence Member of Parliament, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Lorna. There is a silver lining in the Justice Committee examination into the misuse of power in the Prime Minister's office. And Peter Stockland, publisher of Convivian magazine, joins me now from Ottawa. Hi, Peter. Hi, Lorna. Hey, you've written in Convivium that the Justice Committee hearings were a political moment for you that you felt proud to be Canadian. What are you feeling is worth pride at this scandal? Well, Lorna, I mean, I, I compared it to a number of other things that have happened in my life. Uh, and as I sat and watched uh, uh, the, the former Attorney General, Justice Minister, talking, I, first of all, from right from childhood, I felt this incredible connection with uh, and a realization of the way um, Canadians have treated Indigenous people. And here was this amazingly powerful, amazingly articulate Indigenous woman standing up and speaking the truth to power. But the system itself 
actually worked. It, it allowed someone with the, with the courage, with the panache of a, a, a Jody Wilson-Raybould to step forward and say, hold on a minute. And it allowed her, it gave her a venue where she could articulate what the problems are. And then there was a commitment from the members of the committee, not just to take it seriously, but to keep going until they get to the bottom of whatever it is that's going on. And, you know, when you have that combination of an individual and a system that come together I mean, I just couldn't help but feel anything but pride in, in uh, not that we're out of the woods yet, not by any means, but we can get there. Okay, so you are the former editor of the Montreal Gazette. You know uh, the play between Montreal and Ottawa. Um, is, you know, is the corruption uh, scandal we're seeing being charged against SNC-Lavalin uh, was it expected to be this big a deal between Quebec and Ottawa? And has it taken an outsider like Miss Wilson-Raybould to blow the whistle on it? Yeah, I, I think that's a really, really good point, Lorna. There's People are starting to say now, and you're starting to hear some of the kind of corridor uh, commentary coming out, that, well, she just didn't get it. She didn't understand how the game uh, is meant to be played. Um, I'm not, I don't think discrediting her intelligence, but just as you say, she, she is an outsider to the system, although heaven knows, you know, uh, she and her family have been involved in Canadian politics in one way or another for a very, very long time. But sure, there's a, there's a back scratching that goes on between, uh, between Quebec and Ottawa, um, a, a need to keep each other um, you know, in a, in a comfortable place, if you, I can put it that way. Uh, and she was, she is a newcomer to that. She didn't understand it, and she wasn't going to put up with it. And and uh, you say this is a moment for us to go. Hey, this is how Canada should work. There's a fresh moral perspective into old old loops. Okay. All right. Peter Stockland, publisher of Convivium. Thank you for being here with us today. My pleasure, Lorna. Thanks. Context reached out to the Liberal Party, but did not hear back from them at tape time. But here with me now from Ottawa is Timothy Powers, Vice Chair of Summit Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data. Tim, uh, you have Jody Wilson-Raybould saying she was pressured to accept a deferred prosecution agreement. Gerald Butts saying, no, she was not. The Prime Minister's office, we did not do that. How does the Justice Committee reconcile these differences now? Well, I don't know if the Justice Committee can reconcile these differences, and I don't know, as Mr. Butt said in his own testimony, how significant some of the differences are, because uh, Mr. Butts, I believe, used the word persuade or suggested they were trying to persuade. Persuade, persuasion. Uh, I think ultimately the Canadian public is going to pick which version or versions of the story they believe, and the Justice Committee depending on its membership, is going to try and steer the public in, in different directions from the government side, likely hoping to create enough confusion that people say, hey, this is just what politics is, from the conservative and new democratic side, trying to find a smoking gun. That may be hard to do, too. All right. So, Tim, what does the way forward look like for the Liberals while looking down the barrel of a fall election? Well, it's not the way forward they thought. I think they'd hoped for a wonderful summer with great leaves on the trees and a conquering victory lap come October 21st. Uh, they now have to find a way to manage all of this. Mr. Butts' testimony, uh, the testimony of others today, is not going to make this story go away. For them to go forward, I think they have to assume 
some culpability, some suggestion that the prime minister may might speak uh, of being in a contrite mood and acknowledge there were errors. That might be their best play, uh, but it certainly bruised them heading into the fall. Okay, now take us into the political strategy of the conservatives. What are they plotting? What they want to do and what the NDP wants to do, for that matter, is to, to make sure that this story continues. Because as we've seen in any number of polls that have come out over the last number of weeks since uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould resigned and since she spoke to the committee, that liberal support is starting to drop. Uh, they want the whole debate to be about liberal ethics. Uh, and as McLean so well captured in their magazine cover, they want to frame Justin Trudeau as an imposter that uh, never mind what he says, he doesn't deliver. So that's the strategy they're trying to play out and using the committee as a vehicle to do so. Okay. Tim Powers, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. You're very welcome. Still ahead, it's easy to be complicit in corruption, but how can we affect change? A businessman tells us about his tough decision on righting the wrong when it hit his business. You're watching Context. Okay, let's pivot now from Parliament to a town just north of Toronto. Sheldon, you went out with our team to investigate the aftermath of another kind of corruption. That's right, and what a pivot it is from Ottawa to this, Lorna. Uh, we're talking about the first to respond to this tragic case of corruption and exploitation of Get this, 43 Mexican workers actually trafficked in Collingwood, including one little four-year-old boy where the police were talking first responders who were shocked to see what these migrant workers were living in. And of course, the church that opens its doors to be, you know, really the hands and feet of Jesus in this. Let's take a look at it. We believe the victims, the majority of whom were males, paid the traffickers large sums of money to leave their home country. 43 victims lured to Canada with the promise of work visas, education, and permanent residency. Instead, the foreign workers from Mexico were contracted out to nearby hotels as house cleaners. Police say the victims were forced to pay huge fees, leaving them as little as $50 a month. Monica and Fabiola own a Mexican grocery store in Bradford, Ontario. They say their community was shocked to hear how these Mexican foreign workers were treated. They cannot believe it that they had slaves here, you know, like a Mexican slaves. So they were in shock, and we are in shock too. We're here to have a better life, a better economy, to promise that they will have a better economy for their families. Police contacted local churches to help with what they say was a rescue. They needed a place to process the victims and they wanted it to be a safe place and knowing that they would have all had some kind of or majority of them would have had some kind of a faith background uh, they thought a church would be a great uh, opportunity. Craig Head is a chaplain for the Barry Police and Director of Pastoral Care at Mapleview Church which was transformed into a victim service center. On the morning of, about 4 a.m., all the police officers started to arrive here. Outside, there was a, a shower trailer. Then there was paramedic bays with a doctor there checking vital signs. And then there's a registration. There was a clothing bay here. Victim services were here. Preliminary interviews would take place. I mean, this is a, a level of an investigation that even the police and the law enforcement agencies were saying uh, this is bigger than any of them. Uh, even the lead investigators really had 
experienced in. We treated it like an emergency disaster. Major Neil Evenden of the Salvation Army gathered people from the community to help the Mexican victims. We were told the number was about 15 to 20, and so we began to put together hampers, collecting from our supplies here. We put together a hamper for each one of them, uh, so that when they arrived here on Thursday, when they were finally released, they were brought to us and uh, we were able to meet them in our lobby and have a brief conversation. And then we provided them with the food, but also then took them into our thrift store, gave them an opportunity to shop for whatever they wanted. There was a four-year-old as part of this group and we went upstairs to our Christmas toy supply and got some toys for him and the smile on his face was just priceless when we were able to show that. News reports say many of the migrants were working at Living Water Resort, being paid by a third-party cleaning company, and as far as the resort staff knew, were paid a reasonable rate, until it became clear they were being ripped off by the cleaning company. Living Water Resort and Spa stepped up to provide housing and work for all 43 migrants. For Context TV, I'm Sheldon Neal. Joining me now is OPP Deputy Commissioner Rick Barnum. He, alongside other authorities, including the Barrie Police Service and Canada Border Services Agency, commanded a joint investigation and rescue of 43 Mexican migrant workers. Uh, how was the OPP made aware of this human trafficking ring? The information actually came to the attention of uh, Barrie Police, the OPP, um, through members of the public. Will these migrant workers, I'm wondering, be jumping the queue or will they have to go through the same process as anyone really wanting to enter Canada? They came here thinking they were going to get an education, that they are going to get work visas. And ultimately, if it worked out for them, they'd end up as permanent residents of our country. So that was their ultimate goal and, the, and what they believed was about to happen. Uh, so they were obviously excited about that to become uh, potentially Canadian citizens. Once they were exploited and got caught up uh, in basically the nightmare that they were in, uh, they pretty much recognized that wasn't going to happen. Can you describe the conditions these workers were living in? They were in a situation where each day they would receive some, some sort of food uh, that probably wasn't very good. They uh, were not really in a position where they could leave the house simply because financially they didn't have any money. At the end of the money, they, at the end of the month, uh, they would have less than fifty dollars usually. Uh, so that didn't allow them any money to go out and buy their own food, to go out and find their own secure, better location to live. They were a part of the process where they were picked up every morning, delivered to work, picked up right directly from work, delivered back to the house, and essentially stayed there. Have there been any arrests? I'm wondering in this trafficking ring. The investigation is still ongoing. It's complex to the point of uh, multi, multiple countries, which is normal in these styles of investigations now, uh, in almost all of them. Uh, so we have multiple countries involved. We have, uh, you know, sort of a business type approach that we have to work through from a financial style investigation. And we have profits that have been made on the back of individuals. But uh, we're also committed to doing a, an outstanding investigation and make sure that uh, you know, proper charges are laid, that the proper seizures are made, that we understand the finances and can make uh, the best impact that we can. Wow, a lot to unpack. Thank you for joining us today. No problem, Sean. Good to talk to you. Thanks. I exposed something there. I'm hoping that the tendering will be more fair down the way. 
I'm hoping that the losses, people won't hide things. I know the employees were behind me 100%. That was an average Canadian calling out corruption on the handling of an iconic Canadian tourist attraction, Bob Gale, on his whistleblowing on the awarding of contracts to the Niagara Falls 2012 Made of the Mist. Well, his actions saved taxpayers $300 million. A brave example of stopping corruption in Canada. Three other recent whistleblowers were rewarded by the Ontario Securities Commission with a payout of seven and a half million dollars in a new whistleblower scheme. Sheldon, there's people calling out corruption without these cash rewards. Thank you, Lorna. A most unexpected place for corruption is in the handling of Canada's dependence on migrant workers. Professor Janet McLaughlin is co-founder of the Migrant Worker Health Project. She joins us now. Uh, Janet, you've done extensive research on the treatment of migrant workers in Canada. Can you share more about that research and the current state of corruption when it comes to the treatment of migrant workers? Sure. Thanks, Sheldon, for having me. Yeah, I, I've conducted research with migrant workers uh, over a decade, and some of the main issues that we find over and over again are that migrant workers are vulnerable to a number of health issues, and when they do experience these, they face barriers to accessing their rights and benefits. This is partly because of their tied permit, uh, work permits with their employers, which means that they fear uh, asking for their rights because they fear losing their job and they cannot circulate freely in the labour market. And you wrote in McLean's magazine about migrant farm workers and the cruel kind of trade-off at our local grocery stores. Can you expand on what you meant by that? Yeah, so in that article, uh, we were focusing on the issue of migrant workers having to leave their families year after year. Some of them have come here uh, in Canada for 30, 40, even 50 years. Uh, spending the majority of their adult lives uh, picking our fruit and vegetables. And because of that, their children grow up barely knowing their parents. So we were really focusing in that article on this really difficult position that these families are put in. In order to support their families, they essentially have to leave them year after year with no hope of ever immigrating to Canada or having their families join them here. What do you believe needs to change within Canadian laws for migrant workers? Well, there's a whole host of things we can do on, on the macro level as well as the micro level. Speaking very broadly, uh, the right to immigrate to permanent residency is something migrant workers and allies have been calling on for years. But not all migrant workers do want to immigrate to Canada. So for those who do want to come here temporarily, having an open work permit uh, would really help them because if they are in an abusive situation with an employer, then they have the flexibility to change employers and to work in a, in a different operation. Uh, so that would be the two major macro changes. Um, and at the kind of more micro level, uh, having communities more responsive to the needs of migrant workers, having specialized healthcare systems that are able to really support workers uh, in the ways that they need supporting uh, is something that lots of communities are starting to take on and, and we would love to see replicated throughout the country. Janet, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. You're watching Context. Business owner Larry Law never expected to have to clean up corruption in his own living water resort. Larry joins me now in studio. Uh, Larry, it's a shocking case. You own uh, two hotels, a golf course. Um, you're well known in a very uh, beautiful uh, 
resort community in Collingwood area. The police come to your hotel, and what did you learn? Basically, they told us that um, you know um, they have captured a bunch of the Mexican worker, and they were basically human trafficking, and uh, they would uh, find them as a victim. They're going to release them uh, in about 48 hours. You were paying a cleaning company, a third-party cleaning company, established uh, Barrie, Ontario citizens that have been that have been under investigation now. Uh -huh. You were paying a cleaning company $21 an hour. Those workers were only getting $50 a month. This is corruption. Yeah, I mean, yes, yes. And what did you as management do when you found out? It was a huge surprise to us. And by listening to all this kind of thing behind the scene, they were not treated right. And uh, by listening to them, we both in tears. We, tear, we are in tears in a way, how could this thing happen? When we're running a business, as especially as, as a kingdom empire, and we always want to you know, take the business as a mission, a mission to serve, a mission to glorify God. And we cannot accept that. This is just happened around, you know, our, our area that, that way. So we just asked ourselves, we got to do something and what we can do. And we were told that they need housing, they need job. They will be released. The government don't have the budget to keep them. So they will be on their own. And so the police were worried about that they might be on the street. So we are thinking about that, you know, this is just, um, you know, um, a basic human right and the love that we can share. So we offer them for these two things, you know, for the accommodation for free for 30 days. And meanwhile, and we figure out the job for them. And most likely we'll be able to hire some, but sure, we won't be able to hire all of them. But today's problem is to solve their problem. And mm -hmm. we just rely on God to take us through. And uh you, you pulled in the Salvation Army, a local church, like suddenly the community rallied and said, we will not tolerate human trafficking. We will not trap slavery that was going on for cleaning labor. And the, the co-workers, tell us about the interaction with the migrant workers that had been trafficked. They, we arranged uh, um, um, a good transportation for them. By the way, that one was also provided for free from the local transportation company. We particularly, you know, arranged them to arrive from Barrie and we greet them with a big smile. And we also greet them with a nice, you know, um, a breakfast. And the most important thing is the warm we try to offer to them. You've had calls now from the Mexican government, the American government, uh, the Ontario government is getting engaged. This has been a local whistleblower on corruption that had the worst of, of human slavery. Larry, thank you so much for uh, being part of this ongoing story. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. All right. We'll be right back with my wrap. 
The government dilemma over the SNC-Lavalin corruption trial is riveting news theater. How individuals interpret what is right and what is wrong seems to be at the core of it. And the process has reminded me of the New Testament teacher Paul, who wrote to a Roman community whose own corruption would dissolve its society. Paul wrote that the law of right and wrong isn't always written on paper, but in human hearts. The heart as our guide is a tricky thing, and we saw that play out in the differences of opinions among liberal leaders arguing over SNC-Lavalin. Scripture says we should help each other do the best thing, as iron sharpens iron. That's what's underway in keeping Canada a rule of law. For all of us at Context, thank you for joining us. I'm Lorna Duick. See you again next week.